Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my Rocks Back Pages colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Hello, hello Jasper. Hello, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello. We are here, as usual, to tell you about everything that's new on Rocks Back Pages, but we're going to start with the very sad loss of Mark Hollis, frontman of talk talk who died this week and so we have four pieces about talk talk well three really about talk talk and one long interview with mark hollis from over 20 years ago as it happens because this is one of the most extraordinary stories of sort of pop music of the last 30 plus years mark hollis was someone who essentially just walked away from acclaim walked away mm-hmm. from from pop music and literally we've not heard anything um, from uh, him very interesting process we talked a few weeks back about bobby gentry who did Almost Pretty precise, much the same thing. Precisely yeah. the same thing. And it's very rare. Mm. I mean, a lot of people are compulsorily retired by the music business. That's as <laughs> different <laughs> yeah. matter, yeah. Which is, which is, but to actually be a, a working, active musician doing reasonably well, I'm talk to never sold millions of records, but it certainly sold enough to justify making another record. To walk away, his reasons being wanting to actually, the classic things, spending more time with his family, which is, I think, entirely admirable, yeah. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. And so my own memory is that I had sort of put Talk Talk in in a certain kind of bag. I mean, Mm -hmm. they were a pop group, perhaps slightly more interesting than Duran Duran, but... But I remember getting Duran a, Duran, so yeah. I remember I was asked to review *Spirit of Eden* for *The Independent*, so I still vividly remember sitting at my desk listening to that record for the first time and being absolutely astonished mm-hmm. that this was the group that had had a you know huge hit with *It's My Life*. <laughs> yes. um, I mean, I now understand that the, the previous album, the, *The Color of Spring*. Had some kind of transitional elements yeah, in it. Yeah. There's, a, there's a track on there called Chameleon Day, which could almost have been on yeah. Spirit of Eden. It's interesting. Um, David Stubbs posted a thing on Facebook after his death saying how kind of revolutionary those last two albums were. But curiously, given that David, in some case, particularly my band, savaged us for our reactionary elements, that those two albums, I think, particularly laughing stock. I mean, essentially, they're acoustic albums by yeah. electronic instruments, but there's no synthesizers. It's, it's all real instruments, inverted commas. And they are oddly reactionary in that respect. My take is that he'd been listening to a lot of Tom Waits, I think, of, uh, around Heart Attack and Vine sort of territory, around uh, his uh, movie soundtrack, One from the Heart. They curiously sort of predict certain areas of Americana. There's the heavily tremolo mm. guitars, mm-hmm. Hammond organ, mm-hmm. his use of Mark Felton, Nine Below Zero's harmonica player, mm. Brilliantly on that Absolutely stuff. brilliant. Uh, and Henry Lowther's wonderful trumpet, and particularly flugelhorn. And so, Danny Thompson's yeah. on bass. I mean, yeah. it's a very non-80s yeah. lineup. I think there were 17 musicians apart from yeah. the band in, I, in the studio. I mean, it has to be that they passed me by entirely at the time. I was completely involved in black music, really wasn't listening to white pop or rock. Do I love those last two albums and his solo album? I don't love them because I found virtually every song's in a minor key for a start, and I find that fairly gloomy. Pretty, pretty gloomy. But, pretty but, gloomy. but it can be very beautiful as yes. well. For me, particularly, we were listening yesterday to the solo album of Mark Hollis, which is... Which is 1998, yeah. yeah. And it really is very lovely. It's, it's quite quiet and it's almost introspective. Ja- it's almost, but a, jazz it almost a jazz album. It had sort of strong tones of, of John Martin mm-hmm. in it as well. It had well, hence the Danny fragility. Thompson connection there. I think he probably yeah. certainly sure, would have sure. I mean, he's, he's a very curious singer because, I mean, for one thing, is it's very hard to make out what he's singing. So certainly yes. on those two albums. Yes. The, the, the lyrics are very indistinct. Uh, so you end up having to sort of suppose what the song's about by the mood of the tune rather yeah. than anything else. If you listen back to the earlier stuff, he was like that as a singer in the earlier stuff, which is probably one reason why they didn't become the massive pop hit that... It's, a, it's a very odd voice, actually, yeah. isn't it? I can't think of any any voice I would yeah. compare it Absolutely. to. Absolutely. It, it's a sort of anguished bedsit version of sort of Peter Gabriel or something. <laughs> uh, and it is an acquired taste yeah. but I think it's, but it's in not its stri- way a brilliant instrument yes it's not strident mm. I mean no. he does occasionally kind of push out but generally it's, 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 it's curiously intimate you can't hear the words right. and yet yeah. it's an intimate experience but they, they, I mean they were successful enough to then 
pretty much get carte blanche to do what they wanted yeah. on the later albums, mm. which is how they were able to go from doing all yeah. this synth stuff that they didn't like to move mm. to, to, to really, or certainly the yes. Mark Hollis. It's like all the like. money we've made for you, EMI, we now want yeah. to spend, spend. it I mean, on, it, it on a record that's not going to yeah. sell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is that um, okay? Uh, and they sort of said yes. Um, I think getting an ally, particularly in Tim Freeze Green, who produced or co-produced yeah. everything, was a big part of the... the, the they wrote together, they mm. really evolved the stuff together. I mean, by all accounts, recording the later stuff was incredibly Quite torturous, hard, was I think. Incredibly hard. Also, work. Paul Webb was the bass player yeah. in the group, and he is now Rustin Man, and I think he's sort of extending the legacy of what Mark Hollis did. Mm. Interestingly, I mean, the pieces that we're featuring, so we go back to the beginning, 1982, right. Dave Rimmer talking to Mark in Smash Hits, mm-hmm. and already he's being quite curmudgeonly and quite <laughs> contrary so he hate he says i don't want to be compared to you know duran duran tears for fears etc and so dave asked well who would you, would you like to be compared to? And he says well in terms of singers otis redding in terms of songwriters backrack and david in terms of arrangements john coltrane <laughs> this is this Pretty is eclectic this collection. Is, yeah i mean when you uh, listen also, to this john yeah. coltrane for arrangements not the first thing i think about when it no. comes to john coltrane well, especially not no and coltrane is hardly what you think about when you hear, hear those very yeah. early talk talk records they're very very keyboard oriented i think mike thorne was the producer right. they sound like some kind of melange of of like japan orchestral maneuver is in the dark tears for fears it's very very 80s yeah 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 um and although there, there are little clues that say this guy is a bit he's not simon Le Bon. the lyrics <laughs> are really weird and as i said with color of spring the third album there's this track called chameleon day towards and it's the penultimate track where it's where it really is like a signpost mm-hmm. to what's coming the other pieces there's this quite a long piece he's talking to andrew smith about the making of mm-hmm. Spirit of Eden. And they did what a lot of great groups do when they produce sort of masterpieces like this is, is they get out of town and they kind of hide away in a kind of farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. And that's what they did near Bury St. Edmunds in Suffolk. They mm-hmm. sort of hold up there. And, and what came out of that long process was, was Spirit of, of Eden. Then almost the last interview that Mark ever gave to Rob Young in The Wire about his solo album mm-hmm. where he... I mean, at this point, he's talking about Morton Feldman, Ravel, and Mallarmé, the symbolist French poet. So he's really gone a long way beyond sort of it's my life and top of the pops. But, you know, I, I do think Spirit of Eden will will stand up there with albums like Solid Air, you mentioned, yeah, uh, John, yeah. Astral Weeks. It's very much now regarded as being one a member of that club. It, it's funny, I mean, of the two... I slightly you slightly prefer laughing stuff. Y- y- sonically. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's, it, it sounds very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find it just too down, as I said earlier, relentlessly down. But the way in which they use textures and instruments and everything... And you were talking about Mark's own guitar playing, yeah. which is quite extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, we were wondering, you know, was it just him? And looking at all the credits I'd seen... Seems like he, it was. On Laughingstock, he's the only credited guitarist. Wow, right? OK. And... I really like... The funny thing is, you know, I was in a soul band at almost exactly the same time sort of stuff. And if we'd met, once he'd got over his probably initial horror of me, <laughs> I think we'd have had a lot to talk about because, mm. you, you know, we were working with sort of the tremolo guitar, the Hammond organ, this sort of stuff. Yeah, so he goes back to these kind of old old sounds, old ideas, but it sounds very modern as a record. That's, mm. that's the thing. So the very last piece, in fact, is by Ben Myers, now a very respected novelist yeah. well, Big Ben Myers as some people call him <laughs> Big Ben Myers this is a piece from about seven years ago for The Guardian where he's he's talking about what an influence talk talk have been on what uh, Lucy described as post-rock bands yeah. you know did, did all those groups that didn't want to be sort of U2 or, or the Sex Pistols come to that so he's talking particularly about Wild Beasts at that point but he, uh, he mentions Tortoise mm. he mentions even Radiohead I think there's no doubt the spirit of eden changed things in the 80s for those who are paying attention especially for the critics who embraced them i think music had gotten so sterile and synthetic and midied up and sequenced Uh, at that point that spirit of eden was like oh my gosh this is this is extraordinary i think also i mean it's interesting that the bass player went on to do as rustin man did the stuff with beth gibbons that i'd say that that those last two albums are a big influence on trip hop 
And, and, and yeah. he mentions that too, Mark, yeah. in the piece. Um, I mean, yeah. you know, there's a significant, a slightly woozy but real instrument sort of feel. Yes. Um, yeah, no, I mean, yeah. I, having look, as I said, he passed him by, it's been... Well, sad to say, his death has maybe actually really listened to his stuff. Yeah, well, as so often happens. Uh, uh, as as it often happens. And whilst I'm not going to pretend I'm a fan, mm. I have huge admiration for mm. a lot of that Certainly, stuff. I, mm. I mean, again, a band that I haven't really listened to previously, mm. but would like to listen to more of yeah. now, because mm. I do think it, there is a sound there that they captured that was something different. Yes, it's yeah, spe- and, and I mean, the out the outpouring of of sort of grief in the papers has been extraordinary. And, and, and so, social media. I mean, yeah. many of our journalists, our Rocksback Pages journalists, are, are struck by how important talk talk late, particularly late talk talk yeah. were to them. And uh, Richard Williams, Richard Williams wrote a lovely piece. Chris Chris Roberts, one of our contributors, yeah. in fact, helped put together uh, a beautiful book called Spirit of Talk Talk. Mm-hmm. A few years ago, which is which is a sort of you know, high production values tribute to the group. They are one of those critics bands. So we say farewell to Mark Hollis, a, a great loss, even though he hadn't been making music for a long time. Uh, um, he will... Apparently, they were about to get together again. Oh, you said that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, according, that's according, a, according to that's extraordinary. their manager, who's shared with another band. Okay, and, you know, and, and, and I, I read. This well, that is, that 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 does make it even sadder. Yeah. But so. R.I.P. Mark Hollis. Yeah. We're now going to change mood rather abruptly. Mark, are we not? <laughs> are we talking about the audio? <laughs> That's it. That's the one. So this week's audio interview for subscribers is with Jello Biafra and Klaus Fluoride of the splendid Dead Kennedys, probably the biggest punk band to come out of San Francisco. Um, they were anarchic. They were provocative. They were outrageous. I couldn't even reel off some of their song titles <laughs> in this podcast. I think you can, because we're <laughs> going to have to talk about one of them, so we might as well talk about all of them. Yeah. So this is an interview that John Tobler did in London when they were about to play the Lyceum, in fact, in, I think, October 81. That's I was right. supposed to review that gig. I turned up, and my name wasn't on the door. Turned away. Turned away. <laughs> so sad. Um, I always think it must have been my editor, Tony Stewart's fault for not getting my name on Called the out. list. <laughs> Called Tony, out. Tony, Tony, if you're listening, I'll make sure you do listen to this. But I was literally physically manhandled out of the Lyceum and never got to review it. So so there we go. So did, um, you, did you make up your review? I know. No, I just had to say uh, yeah. I couldn't see the show. But so we're going to, what are we going to hear in well, this clip, Mark? Uh, well, let's name the song. They had a song called Nazi Punks Fuck Off. Um, uh, uh, Sharp uh, and take a breath. And, and, and Tobler kind of Asks him about this song, and he doesn't use the no, F word. No, he says just question. Says, he just says Nazi punks. Yes, um, and they proceed to talk about it, about how it's a misconstrued thing. We'll listen to this, but also the broader thing. And again, they mention this in this clip about how the National Front were, were turning up at kind of British punk gigs and so on. So this is mostly Jello. The, um, fluoride gets a look in here, and there. he doesn't chip in with a lot, does uh, he? Talking about interview. Nazi punks. Fuck off. off. Overproduced by Martin Hannett, take four. Tell me about your track, Nazi Punks. Tell me about that. Uh, it's not pro-Nazi Punks in any way. It's called Nazi Punks Beep Off. And you get the idea, it's... Another problem we've had in America is, is suddenly when punk does actually start to get popular, it brings in the punk redneck as well. And I don't know how what kind of what kind of idea you have about what a redneck is over here. A redneck is somebody who believes in brawn over brains, might makes right, loves to beat people up. Meaning, if people are going to start cutting their hair off and putting their bandanas on, which is a, a unique to thrash fashion as opposed to punk fashion and start going to gigs, the, uh, the thing we're trying to put across in this song is leave your redneck mentality behind and get rid of it, or we yeah. don't want you no, here. The, the lyrics are like, uh, uh, you know, you're no you better... You still think swastikas are cool, the real Nazis run your schools, or coaches, businessmen, and cops, and the real Fourth Reich will be the first to go, or this kind of thugs that the L.A. Times helped attract to the gigs and things who... Uh, but uh, the second verse, if you come to fight, get out of here, you know better than the bouncers. 
I, I'm assuming that there's some of the same problems over here, so I think the song is very applicable to National Front Fools yes. and the like. Yes, I think you're absolutely Our right. favorite friends out here. <laughs> Sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really enjoyed this interview. Um, Toba's very good with punk bands because uh, even though the, he was uh, one of the leading lights at Zigzag magazine, which was started off as a very kind of West Coast looking sort of slightly hippish rag, embraced punk with Chris Needs and others particularly. And uh, Toba knows his stuff. Um, Interestingly, in this interview, they talk about the, sort of the, the, the West Coast punk bands as being a kind of community, mm. huh. all helping yeah. each other out. It starts off, they've obviously just played a track from a compilation album that the Dead Kennedys have put together, featuring the likes of Flipper and DOA yeah. and so on and so forth. He talks very generously about Flipper, about DOA, about Black Flag. Yeah. And he says, you know, every town in America, there's these kids getting mm. this sort of thing together. Yeah. And, mm. and in a way, this was the seed of what became the American independent Mm. A record label business, mm. which culminated in sub pop, for example, yeah. and, and grunge. Um, yeah. Jello's very engaging, very articulate. Bit of a nerd as well. Uh, quite it's nerdy. Quite funny, <laughs> right? You're yeah. talking about thrash fashion versus punk fashion and all this. Well, well, indeed. In fact, the, the, the last clip will be about slam dancing and, and he how he gives a, gives a sort of. Yes. They're very, they're very of, geeky in it, which I. I, I was surprised yeah. by having never heard uh, them speak uh, before. I, I think I think it's partly because they felt actually embattled. Um, that, that uh, unlike in the UK, where punk was embraced by the major labels, the Clash was signed to CBS and so on and so forth, is that these bands were real outsiders, particularly the West Coast bands. And I'd say even though that they themselves are a San Francisco band, that the LA punk bands playing in Los Angeles of all places, mm. the most white bread bourgeois middle-class place and i think then it must be quite disconcerting to want to be rebelling and saying something different but then people latching on that you fundamentally disagree with latching onto your movement and Uh, then the media painting you out as nazis and fascists that happened a lot in in the california Uh, but also it also precisely the same time happened around two-tone bands here absolutely yeah Uh, we were talking about it the other week about skinheads and this it, kind of it, thing. Exactly. It's interesting that he actually badmouths the LA Times about two or three times in this interview. I've got to go back through the LA Times, which are available online, just to see who was writing what about them and about that scene. Well, I mean, it was some of our writers, wasn't it? It was, it was Don Snowden, it was Don Waller. But, I mean, but the idea that the LA Times, the implication, if I understood it correctly, is that they were trying to attract the, this boneheaded redneck yeah. element to gigs, which I can't really see why that would have been in the interest of the LA Times, other than maybe it's a better story. Yeah, well, but it's it an odd one. I suspect the place to find those stories are in the news pages, not in the. the Arts pages yeah. of the paper, actually. Yeah. Possibly like, yeah. you know, uh, gang attacker. Yeah, well, so, yeah. I mean, and, you know, the audiences could be pretty rough. Yeah. You know, the mosh pit was a fairly scary place to be. But it's so. nice to hear Jello talking. I mean, there's a generosity there, there's, there's, yeah. there's a humour there, there's things I didn't expect. Because in many ways, he did become like a sort of American Johnny Rotten with a political conscience. Right. And was a real figurehead for mm. anarcho-punk kind of tendencies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, my favourite record by them is Holiday in Cambodia, which is, I just think, one of the great punk records. More notoriously, you know, California Uber Alice, which is a real statement of, it's, it's, of sort of Cal- that kind of California mindset, yeah, that yeah, redneck yeah. California mindset. Yeah, yeah. But um, always, they had their moments. I was always very fond of too drunk to fuck myself. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, so okay. um, we'll just uh, yeah, leave the F word to Mark this week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's, it's a great interview. We'll play a, a bit at the end of the the end of the podcast, but it's good stuff. Excellent, Dead Kennedy. So we are just briefly going to talk about the featured writer this week is Mark Leverton, uh, also Californian. Um, the picture of him on the home page is of him standing in the original Rhino Records store in Claremont uh, with his soon-to-be wife, Linda, in the summer of 1976. And so Mark worked at Rhino and later worked for Warner Brothers. I 
I met him at Warner Brothers in Burbank many years later. He's written for kind of BAM and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so he piped up uh, two, three months ago and pitched a story about going on one of these rock cruises. (laughs) Would we be interested in his account of being on the On the Blue Cruise in the company of the likes of Justin Hayward, Vanilla Fudge, Al Stewart, Procol Harum, Ricky oh, Derringer. Amazing. You know, I mean, uh, I my of idea of, I don't know about hell, but oh, yeah. this idea of a oh, sort no, of pot-bellied yeah. Dave Mason kind of holding court and Rod Argent sort of signing kind <laughs> well, of albums. It, 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 it does all seem rather sad no, to me. It is my idea of hell. <laughs> uh, I, 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 categorically. You know, categorically my idea of hell. So you know where you're going then. <laughs> <laughs> Satan's got a little patch marked out. <laughs> but it's very, I mean, just I'm just going to read a little uh, excerpt yeah. from this piece. From random conversations, my fellow cruisers, dash, overwhelmingly white senior citizens being serviced by a staff of a thousand young people of colour, dash, were pretty knowledgeable about music. But more than a few had a slight stalker vibe about them <laughs> and were quite focused on obtaining autographs, photos and special attention and were not above confronting an artist walking on deck or in dining rooms. I met one guy in his mid-40s who'd flown in from Australia specifically to hear Alan Parsons <laughs> debut some new material. I want to get at least one CD signed, he said, but I understand his wife keeps him away from fans. I'll have to work around that. <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> so creepy. Just the whole, the whole vibe of it sounds yes, yeah, absolutely yeah, terrifying. Yeah, it's it's just, like, and, bless, and Al Stewart actually pipes up and says, uh, so he introduces his song Sirens of Titan, which I think he's maybe the first song Al Stewart ever wrote. And he says, he says, this song probably makes no sense to anyone who hasn't read the Kurt Vonnegut novel. But I've realised audiences are not listening to the lyrics of my first song. They're too busy trying to figure out how old I look. Kind of sums it up. Self-aware. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The other two, so uh, the pieces from the archive by Mark Leverton are a profile of Stephen Bishop, another of the attractions of the On the Blue Cruise, <laughs> and rather more interestingly to me is a report about Slash Records from 1984, ah. where he talks to Bob Biggs, the founder, and someone I knew in LA, Susan Clary, who's his kind and of right, so for right the hand. uninformed. So Slash Records. <laughs> well, I was going to go on to that. Just, but thank you for the prod. <laughs> Slash Records was probably the biggest independent label that came out of Los Angeles at that time. Uh, probably the first record would, would have been the Germs album in 79. Tying in exactly what yeah. we're talking about. Well, the there you go. Dead so it came out of Slash magazine, which was a punk yeah. zine. Slash signed the Blasters, they signed X, probably the biggest band, I would guess. The Flesh Eaters, Rank and File, Dream Syndicate, Green on Red, and Fear. Interesting. So they were both sort of hardcore punk and sort of loosely paisley underground. Cow punk, Cow sort, punk of sort of thing with Rank and File. So a really interesting spread of stuff, but yes. all on this one very small label. That's, that's, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, and he's an interesting guy. I'm not sure. I mean, like anyone who kind of sticks their head above the parapet in, in that sort of business, uh, I think he made enemies. And uh, you know there was a lot of competitiveness between mm-hmm. the labels, other labels like SST, obviously and Black Flag, Posh Boy Records, Danger House Records, but Slash produced some of the artists that that we still hear about today. Like X still means something today. Yep. The Dream yep. Syndicate still means something today. I think Biggs's mistake was he tended to sign these bands to what they called one-shot deals. Right. So they'd make one album for Slash and then get signed by a label so yeah. X went to Elektra and so yeah. forth but it's an interesting um, cool. it's an interesting kind of snapshot of, of that period um, and um, we are now going to move on Mark to your domain your <laughs> principal domain you're going to tell us what's new for subscribers well, in the I, library as always there's a huge amount of fabulous stuff which goes without saying but once again, I'm going to kick off with my favourite girl, Dawn James from Rave, 1966. Is she playing you? Well, maybe she should be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's an interview with Scott Walker. Actually, it's with all of the Walker brothers, um, but done separately, each one done separately. She's very good at She just obviously asks the right question, and these people basically hang themselves with their tosh that they're prone to speaking. Scott Walker's, I've always got a sense, is rather pleased with himself. I know I'm going to get hung by a lot of those 
walk of fans out there. Do we need to get you a bodyguard? I think so, yeah. But anyway, she gets him to say things like, don't go putting that I'm tall and blue-eyed and handsome. I'm not. I'm a little too thin and my hair is mousy. And, well, I'm not beautiful looking. Which is the biggest look-at-me statement you can imagine. Um, (laughs) Well, he wasn't the most beautiful walker. You know, I mean, he had had girls screaming. Who was, in your opinion, Barney, the most beautiful walker brother? I can't remember which one was, but one of them was very handsome. (laughs) And, of course, they weren't really brothers. Who were they? The Walker Brothers were from California. They had some huge hits. Well, they had some early hits produced by people like Jack Nietzsche in Los Angeles. Mm. They actually achieved their biggest success when they moved to London. They were in that very big, quite grandiose orchestral pop style. Orchestral pop. Mm -hmm. And then Scott left and became this extraordinarily introverted intellectual. Well, as I'm sure he would claim, he says like things like, I'm searching for something, I don't exactly know what, and I'm like a blind man running in the dark. I mean, it's hilarious. I mean, this is in rave. We all feel like that. In rave magazine, um, yeah. And then you know, about America's, I don't miss home at all. There's nothing there. I wanted to get out. The Americans have too much regard for material things. Man. Which is man. You know. But that blind man running in the dark one, I think just made me roar with laughter. <laughs> uh, so, uh, moving on. The Beatles, the White Album, reviewed in a track-by-track manner by Alan Smith and Yimi's We Express. like track-by-track. You know, this is 1968, so serious music journalism has emerged, but the, the pop papers still had, didn't really know how to write about you know, serious music. And so they'd use things like beaty. It's a beaty number and things like that. <laughs> anyway, so he, he listens to this album. And he, most of it he loves. He particularly loves nearly all Paul McCartney's contributions. Okay. But he, says, he calls it the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he says, the bad and the ugly is crystallised in Revolution Number no. 9, a pretentious piece of old codswallop, which is no more than a long, long collection of noises and sounds seemingly dedicated towards expanding sales of Aspro. I'm angry at this because the listen to me, I'm being mysterious bit is a piece of idiot immaturity and a blotch on their own unquestioned talent as well as the album. <laughs> uh, but, uh, for, uh, Aspro, by the way, was the brand name of a particular sort of aspirin at the time. I think they're long gone. Well, that's um, for that footnote. Uh, I like this footnote. I, I th- well, I think we need to explain. We need, we need, we need the, context. Well, the context. Anyway, uh, it's, it's great. Actually, the, the, virtually every review of that album, we got quite a few on the site, they, everyone hates Revolution Number Nine, and actually, I listened to it the other day. I rather liked it. Oh, finally starting to like Revolution Number, number Nine. nine. <laughs> number well, nine. It, it's a hell of a lot better than Honey Pie, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry. Okay. Um, Zoo World American paper. John Tivum interviewing Queen's Brian May in '73. It's a very early Queen interview by any standards. There's yeah, hardly any exactly. English press at mm. that time. It's actually the earliest interview we carry. There may be others. That's terrific. But, but by the great Anglophile John Tim. A huge Anglophile. Actually, Brian May, as he always does in interviews, comes out as a rather nice, interesting guy, you know, with a bit of, you know, hinterland. I mean. With a big curly poodle with head. With a big curly poodle. And married to him with an almost identically with a big, big curly, curly poodle, poodle head. head. But he's very good in, in this. Uh, first of all, there's this whole thing about, you know, uh, the name Queen, the gay inverted commas aspect. Because Tivan comes out with some awful lines about, you know, is it. Don't, right? don't no. shame no. him. I, 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 I won't. But, it was but, of the time. But Brian well, says... not an excuse necessarily. Yeah, he says, it's very regal and dignified on stage. I don't know quite what to think of the name now. There's some ambiguity there. Some! <laughs> some! So that, that, that's, um, and then he says a couple of really interesting things. He says, the Sweet are a funny band. I think Hellraiser is an amazing single. It's great and very well produced. Extremely tight. I mean, you know, that had got him laughed out of the room in serious rock circles at the time. I think it's great. And he says, I do like the Jackson 5. That singer's great, whatever his name is, and they've got the sort of rhythm section I go for. Nothing can touch it. And, you know... Spot on, quite right. It's absolutely spot on. Mm. The the, the singer... Sings great, whatever his name is. I like like that. that. I remember Nicky Chin of Chin and Chapman, who were the great producers behind The Sweet, another of those kind of bubble glam acts. He told me he was at, I think, the Speakeasy or the Revolution Club one night, and they put on... Ballroom Blitz. Mm-hmm. And Robert Plant was in the room and came out and, and said, Nicky, this is just such a great record. And Nicky Chin thought that Robert Plant, of Led Zeppelin, was taking the mickey. And, and no, no, I, I really mean it. Yeah. I love this record. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and I think, I think people did genuinely love... 
those chin and chat. Oh, well, They're sweet, but too red Well, I mean, you know, the thing is, your brain could be saying, mm. I hate this. And you'd find yourself pulled into them. I find this over and over again with bands like The Sweet, yeah. is that you, you can, you know, my, my rational head say, you should not be listening to this, this is disgraceful. <laughs> but this view just was totally swallowed up by yeah. the, that pop sound, you know. Um, it, it's, it's very funny. Just returning to just, I do love the whole, I mean, I love that quote about you know, the ambiguity of the name. <laughs> I mean, now we look back and it so, sort of seems so absurd yeah. that you could, you could call yourselves... Queen and mince around like Freddie did, and yeah. and no one talked about well, about homosexuality or or, not, not or gay th- gay culture. Well, because a lot of people weirdly chose not to see it. I had, mm. when I had, had time, hiding in plain sight. Yeah, wasn't I had a driving instructor you know, when I was learning to drive, was, and Queen came around and he said legend, you know, in a ghastly sort of sorry sort of way. And I said, yeah, you know, it's an extraordinary thing. He's, he's so gay. He's gay? He almost fell out of the car. He was astounded when I burned him. Some people yeah, just yeah, sort of real. chose not to see what was right it, in front In a way, of it was so flamboyant yeah. that it, it, it paradoxically obscured <laughs> Freddie's sexuality, yeah. I think. It's a strange, it is a strange thing. I know, and the band being called Queen. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's too funny. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Uh, a couple of years later, a Jackie Wilson interview, Bob Fisher and the NME in 1975. It's nice because Ashton's interview with Jackie Wilson, and there are very few interviews with Jackie mm. Wilson around. I guess he wasn't far off having this cataclysmic sort of health problems. Which we had a massive stroke. Yeah, didn't he, at yeah. Some and ends up in poverty yeah. as well. And yeah. So, and so forth. His career's long been on the wane. He's had the huge hits at the, the end of the 50s. Yes. Um, lonely mo- Teardrops, etc. Yeah, mostly yeah. written by Barry Gordy. A lot of Sorry, well, Lonely Teardrops certainly was. Yeah. And then as a pause, and then he had a kind of brief splurge with like mm. higher and higher mm. in, in, in the 60s. By the 70s, his career was on the People rocks. don't talk about Jackie Wilson now in the way that they talk about James Brown. Yeah. You, one feels that, that people always talk about mm. James Brown. And it would be a crime, really, if Jackie Wilson's name sort yep. of slipped out of history. He was... A, one of the greatest singers, one of the most flamboyant, extraordinary singers that R&B ever produced, going into the soul era. And B, uh, as much of a a showman, an extraordinarily kind of acrobatic live performer as James Brown ever was. And, I mean, there's some extraordinary records there. Some incredible, I mean, you know, look for Jackie Wilson on YouTube. He was was utterly magnificent. In this interview, he he does talk about his erotic stage show you know he uses that word yeah he he does you know if you read interviews with other musicians around that time they all talk about him as being the most dynamic you couldn't follow Jackie Wilson you couldn't you couldn't that follow Jackie Wilson. I mean, I don't think even James Brown felt comfortable following Jackie. Yeah, Bro- he was he was an astonishing performer. Yeah. Um, he's, I like this little quote. He says, "I wanted to, he, he was um, he was a boxer as well. I wanted to go pro, but my mother thought I sang better than I boxed. She didn't mind me hitting people, just them hitting me." <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on to seventy nine, and actually, kind of a curiously important article is this is the, mm. the the title of the article is "If you want blood and flash bombs and dryers and confetti, you've got it." Jeff Barton's Sounds, 19th of May, 79. The strap line is, the new wave of British heavy metal, first in an occasional series by Death Barton. <laughs> and, Less and, Jeff. and that's the very first time that, 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 that phrase was coined, the Nubum. The, the, he, 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 he coined the name, yeah. the movement, essentially. Uh, uh, it's, it's a reports come live review, and he says, if you've read Sounds with any regularity over the past year or so, you'll doubtless be aware of the existence of the bandwagon, a heavy metal sound house, onto the side of the Prince of Wales pub in Kingsbury Circle, London, NW9. Now, that is significant, because mm. that was actually where the heavy metal revival started. It was a it's a sort of incubator yeah, for ab- the whole ab- scene, isn't it? And this is the first time that club has moved into a larger venue. OK, uh, uh, OK. And three bands, Angel Witch, Iron Maiden, Samson. Angel Witch wow. have, become, have gone into some obscurity. Yes. But Iron Maiden and Samson uh, absolutely well, defi- particularly Iron Maiden, yeah. Yeah. still a huge yeah. band. Yeah. Um, band. And this is the first time they've played a club bigger than sort of someone's back room. I love much. when we get this kind of early piece. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, just to see the germs of something that then became... I always love the idea of a, of a new wave of heavy metal. Yeah. Even heavy metal got its new <laughs> wave. New you know? Because we tend to think of it as a very sort of monolithic thing. It never really yeah. changes. Yeah. It's the same kind of fans that go yeah. to metal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, this, in this article, 
article, he talks about how the audience is a bunch of punks at first on the dance floor, and all the heavy metal fans are kind of like looking at them dubiously and all that. And then by the end of it, even the punks are dancing to the metal bands and Great. so on and so, right. so forth. And also that the bands themselves were faster, yes. had taken on some of the punk aesthetic in terms of... Because the, the original metal heroes had become a bit sort of flabby yeah. by then, hadn't they? Yeah. You know, and they were using synthesizers. Yeah. Even <laughs> Black Sabbath had a synthesizer yeah. on sort of volume four, I think. Uh, so, uh, absolutely. So, so, so anyway, and as I said, it's the, the article in which the term new wave of British heavy metal was, was termed. So it has a kind of... A, a an historic, historic piece. An historic uh, and it piece. had, they had an influence, of course, on the next kind of iteration of American metal band. Huge. So, you know, I mean, would Metallica have happened? Absolutely. Would Megadeth have happened yeah. and so forth without, you know, uh, Samson? Um, possibly without <laughs> Samson. But, but I know that those guys, yeah, I know that, yeah. you know, Lars and James, they, they certainly they certainly gave gave their props what? to the 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 worst acronym in music history uh, moving on to practice that, <laughs> <shouldn't we? laughs> the last piece I've got is fascinating it's from Rolling Stone October 1993 by Michael Goldberg and it's an abuse of trust. Michael Jackson defends his honour. And it's about the very first allegations of impropriety by... So just to reiterate, this is 1993. Yeah. It's a long uh, time ago. And it's about okay. the Geordie Chandler case. Geordie Chandler isn't named in the article, but it's, it becomes known as that, in which basically the family were paid off hugely by Michael Jackson to sort of go away. I mean, we're talking about millions to mm. go away. But what's interesting about this piece is that everyone around Jackson is just saying, this is nothing. This will go away. Yeah. Attorney John Branker, currently renegotiating the $65 million six-album record deal Jackson made with Sony two years ago, believes Jackson can survive the scandal if the charges prove to be false. He's quoted as saying, If the sense is that Michael was unfairly accused, I think that people will empathise with him as a victim to such a degree that it will be a major positive in his career. I think people will be so disgusted, Branker says, that they'll say, Look at this guy, he did nothing wrong, and look what the press did to him. I think he'll be a hero. It's so ironic to be oh, reading this now when this film Finding Neverland has right. just come out. And, I mean, interestingly, it's attracted the same degree of a program mm-hmm. from, from the Jackson community. The fans are absolutely enraged. There's lawsuits. Yeah. They're trying to stop this film. But it's, it, it, as I understand... It's amazing it, I mean, not, what people yeah. are willing to ignore from well, someone who... Especially when there's so much money around. I, oh mean, God, I mean, without a doubt. I mean, this is John Branca, his lawyer, yeah. in, you know, talking about this stuff, and he's just renegotiating a 65 million six-album deal. Yeah. Of course, what's worth remembering is Dangerous had come out two years ago, and he only had two more albums in him after that. And they were all terrible. As, as, an, as an artistic force, he was burnt out. He was spent. He was absolutely spent. The uh, nadir, of course, is that sort of horrendous performance at the Brits oh. that Jarvis Cocker waggled his ass at. At that point, I just thought, you have lost the plot, yeah, Michael. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, it's desperately sad. I mean, this is a man who was abused by his father. Mm. Um, in some, you know, say he had a hard life, he had fantastic wealth and so mm. on. But, I mean, he was deranged by his circumstances. He know? was insane. He was, I think so. I, I, think, I, think, so. I think he was. You know, this is a man who made some of the greatest music sure. ever. Indisputable. Indis- you know, I mean, if we're talking about Thriller and Off the Wall mm. as solo albums and his work with the Jackson 5 before that. Just for I Want You Back. Have you never done oh. anything except I Want You Back? But anyway, I mean, it was, I was quite shocked to realise that th- this, this whole story went back that far, yep. ni- 1993. Yeah. That's, I think, all I've got to talk about. What, anything you guys have identified? Well, we could chip in with a few things, couldn't we? Oh, go we on. Could. Go on, do you want to chip in? Do you want to talk about Whiplash? Well, let's talk about Whiplash. Yeah. yeah. Great. So there's a piece I added on Whiplash, the film by, directed by rather Damien Chazelle. Rather than the band. Rather than the band. The band we now have to form. Yeah. The new wave of British No other than Whiplash. But... In any case, it's a sort of review slash report on drumming as a as an idea, but also a review of this film Whiplash mm-hmm. that came out four years ago. Nick Hastert in The Independent on the 16th of January 2015, talking about how Whiplash has put drummers in their rightful place as music's irreplaceable root. And it's an interesting piece because I don't particularly like the film Whiplash, mm-hmm. 
but he makes his point that it's kind of trying to position drumming as something worthy of respect rather than yes oh it's he's just a drummer in the band yeah. he's sort of shirtless and drunk yeah. Yeah. yeah well i mean which, which we as musicians it's, it's a given. It's, yes, it's absolutely. Drums most absolutely. Person. But we talked about Whiplash yesterday yeah. and kind of concluded that it's basically a sports movie yep. about music and hmm. Damien Chazelle's attitude towards jazz and yeah. towards drumming is just completely wrong. Yeah, I mean, Simon and I went to see a preview of it when it was, when it was coming out and it was an interview with the director and so on and so forth. And I'm just watching it thinking, this is a, it's a good film. In yeah, many it's, good, it's good entertainment. It's, it's well good made. Drama. It's very well made, very well filmed. But it's a sport, as I said, it's a sports movie. It's about the bullying coach in the locker room right. and all that. None of which has anything to do with music. Not at all. And the thing that's most prized about drumming, and actually Nick Haster does make this point mm-hmm. to his credit, the thing that's most prized in the film Whiplash about drumming is drumming really, really fast, which, if you know anything about music, is not really that interesting <laughs> no. or what you care about, yeah. what makes you feel anything. And, and yeah, no, that's, that's, that's right. It, it, it's drumming as, as, as a physical recreational activity and competitive activity. Mm. Well, that ain't what drumming or any sort of playing music is about. I mean, you can get an element yeah. of that, but it's not what it's centrally about. No, no. Um, it infuriated me. Uh, yeah, it really infuriated It's really irritating. Me. And also, if people know that you like jazz, yeah. they go, oh, have you seen Whiplash? Uh, no. like, and the thing is that Damien Chazelle's opinion of jazz, as he then proved with La La Land, which was his next film is totally bizarrely sort of revivalist white saviour complex kind of you know old jazz is the yep. most important thing and none of this newfangled anything that's come out since 1960 is any of any worth which is very much along the lines of what um, the Ken Burns documentary on jazz which uh, basically you know, stated that the last Miles Davis quintet was the last proper jazz oh, group. For, you know, just mm-hmm. um, a way to miss the point entirely. Well, entirely, I mean, you know. Um, I hated that element of La La Land. I have to say, I thought I was deeply underwhelmed by La La Land, but I thought the whole sort of uh, sentimentalization of, of old jazz heroes, you know. Not even to mention the appalling dancing in the film. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> anyway, so that, that's a that's a piece about it's a good whip, piece though. It's a good, it talks about just drumming in general, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, no, interesting. I'd just like to touch on two or three pieces. One particularly that I loved, which was Max Bell's profile of Andrew Lauder for the Independent 2004. Now, Andrew Lauder was one of the great... He's still one of the great music men. Mm-hmm. Record men. Yeah. Record men. A, a true record man. A guy who just sort of somehow got a lucky break on Denmark Street in the 60s mm-hmm. and ended up running Liberty, working for United Artists, signing all these extremely uncommercial bands <laughs> like the Groundhogs, <laughs> later forming Silvertones. So he had the oh, Stone right, Roses right, on. Right. It was his desk that the Stone Roses came came in and overturned in a, in a fit of pique. But, but he was... I mean, <laughs> it's worth reading because this is one of the few executives who really have cared about music yeah, in yeah. the last kind of 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, tremendous character, ended up living down in Cornwall, running another, yes, another label in the kind of 90s and noughties. So a salute to, to Andrew Lauder. There's also a piece I love, which is just Andy Gill writing about Johnny Allen's version of Chuck Berry's song, Promised Land. Oh. One of Chuck's greatest songs. Johnny Allen, one of his greatest interpreters, really. I mean, Johnny Allen was the great Cajun pop singer. And this is a version yeah. of Promised Land with, with an accordion. <laughs> and it's just one of the greatest records ever made. I got to pay tribute to the late, great Charlie Gillett, is that he yeah. played that record to he death did. on his, Absolutely on, on his show. Did. And we all bought it. I still got it lurking around in my singles great. collection at home. He put it out, in fact. Did on, he? It was the first oval single, I believe. And it ah. led to a compl- well i think he played it and then he signed it to release here in the uk and he put out a beautiful compilation called another saturday night do you remember that yeah 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 with johnny allen and a bunch of other great Um, cajun uh, guys around the same time our colleague martin collier was here last week as guesting was um uh, he was an avid fan of that show and i think he did, I think he was a honky tonk. He, he, he worked. He worked on the show in some. He like he answered telephone calls or something. For, so he did something like that, and and he got 
a copy of the Bobby Ch- the first Bobby Charles oh, Bearsville album from that, which he then gave to me. I've got this lurking oh, around at home. Um, but yeah, that Johnny Allen version of Promised Land is just fantastic. It really is. It just sizzles, doesn't yeah. it? It's electrifying. Yeah. It just jumps off the turntable. Yeah. I, I absolutely love it. I like it mainly for the writing. There's a review of the XX's album I See You from a couple of years ago by Luke Turner in The Quietus, and he really doesn't like I See You, and it's quite <laughs> funny. Uh, and it's, I See You is a lot better than the two utter clunker tracks that have preceded it might suggest, but then he goes on to describe these two utter clunker tracks. The first, On Hold, is two out-of-the-box generic The XX songs and a charmlessly abused sample of Hall & Oates' I Can't Go For That, No Can Do, crudely <laughs> hammered together, ruining what might have been a pretty chorus with a terrible Summer Bangers, with a Z, volume 24 synth rush. <laughs> it suggested we might be getting an album as soundtrack to a regrettable visit to the SDI clinic after an overly carefree and much Instagram trip to a Croatian beach festival. <laughs> Luke, salute you. Very good. Brilliant. It really is very, very funny. funny. And you know, he goes into detail about why he thinks that the XX have have gone astray, the mawkish and sentimental, oversimplified, sound like the worst of their own copyists, which I haven't spent a lot of time listening to that album, but I can see kind of how that happened because for a while the XX were everywhere. I mean, their their tracks were being used on trailers, on TV ads, and everything. And I think possibly they just sort of lost a bit of the fragility and and stuff that made them interesting to begin with. But that, that's, that's just such a great piece of writing. Brilliant it's writing. Really, absolutely brilliant. I <laughs> couldn't, yeah. They became very hip, didn't they, with like even R&B stars in America kind of following yeah. up with the XX and you would come and see them. I'm glad to say they play. passed me by entirely. Though, as you say, I probably had it in flicks. You probably did, knowing. yeah, you yeah. probably did. Yeah. One more, mainly because neither of you will have heard of, of this singer, Alessia Cara, who is a young pop R&B-ish mm-hmm. Alternative R and B, or as I earlier found out, it's been described as PB R and B, as in perhaps the Blue Ribbon R and B, sort of hipster R and B. Sorry, you've completely <laughs> lost me here, Carl. All that means. But anyway, she's actually pretty good. No. Well, PB R is a beer. I know it's a beer. Drunk by hipsters. Okay. PB R and B. I'd guess it's. Drunk by hipsters because it appears in blue velvet that that the that, that um what's the you know the, the his mask is for his face going Dennis Hopper Dennis Hopper perhaps blue ribbon oh you think that's it, it. Well, that's gonna that's, be, that's gonna oh, be, I'd love to think that's terrible. why they well, drink it's terrible kids. bloody beer that's yeah it's sure. awful it's horrible stuff <laughs> yeah. but anyway so it's sort of alternative R and B but actually Lesia Cara is pretty good and she had a huge hit with a single. Here, which is basically about her being miserable at a house party, so it's a bit of an antidote to, to the, average, that one. the average pop music. It's a really good tune, very well produced, oh, very play it well when we go back in. Certainly, shall. And that interestingly, she talks. There's a long interview with Caroline Sullivan in the Guardian in March 2016, and she talks about wanting to make albums and not just making right. singles. And Caroline Sullivan says the advent of streaming has dismantled albums into clusters of tracks, which, in Alessia Cara's view, impairs the pleasure of listening. Yeah. She says mm. we live in such a singles-based world, and I hate being disappointed by an album. I hate it when a few songs are okay, but the rest is a letdown. I want to do a cohesive mm. body of work, yeah. and I think that's interesting. As a young, I mean, she's really. It's interesting, in actually, the, certainly in R&B, it's returned to what it used to be like. We were talking about Gladys Knight the other day in this mm. podcast, mm. and about how they were perceived at Motown as a singles artist. And I remember being astonished when I got an R&B album, which was a good album, you know, because yeah. they so rarely were. Yeah. There'd be like two singles and a bunch of filler tracks, you know. And then you get something like Bessie Wright's Danger High Voltage, and it's just electrifying from beginning to end. And of course, what's going on, Marvin Gaye and so on and so forth. So it's actually returned, oddly, through streaming, to what it was back in the, in the 60s. Funny, yeah, it's an interesting perspective. Well, everything it. is geared towards this the instant yeah. sugar high hit. Yeah. On streaming playlists, isn't but you know that's it? always and been I think the case. That is it's, sad. it's always been the case. Radio, mm. pop radio, has been always been about that. Mm, mm. And what was novel was the emergence of the album as a standalone item in its own right, which basically started in 1966 and started collapsing by 1996. Mm. So you've got a thirty-year kind of interval where huh. the album yeah. was actually yeah. unimportant. I mean, having said all that. <laughs> Artists like Beyonce and Rihanna still Absolutely, make yeah, yeah, really great good albums. albums. Really oh, I agree. Really that good do albums. have what does she she say a cohesive body of work? Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, Anti by Rihanna, which yeah. I absolutely love, was a cohesive body of work to me. Because mm. I've taken 
mild listening habits over to streaming. I listen to albums from top to bottom all the time using streaming services, but that's just because I'm old, I guess. And I, was, I, I, I didn't want to say it. I am. <laughs> it's true. And, and I, too, am old. Jasper is not old, and we thank Jasper for being able to to talk to us about people like Alessia Cara. And in fact, this is really your whole sort of neighbourhood, isn't it? This kind... Well, you're very big on modern jazz and R&B. Yeah, I mean, she, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it is white R&B in this case. Yeah. But she's not... PBR&B. I mean, PBR&B. <laughs> but I mean, the, what, I, what I like about Alessia Cara as opposed to someone like Ariana Grande, who is kind of appropriative of it mm. Alessia Cara seems to be a bit more honest a bit more genuine a bit more interested in doing the music brilliant well thanks for your report Jasper it's been lovely being with you again and we will see you next week Mark take us out with the sort of outro clip from the Dead Kennedys yeah this is about slam dancing which they kind of rather deny the term they say it's again it's the term of Los Angeles Times I think put, yeah. put on what is and the pit the mosh pit the and, mosh pit and uh, I'm partial to a bit of bit of moshing myself it's very interesting they're, they're, they're oddly <laughs> geeky as we said earlier about the nature of what precisely constitutes yeah um, this, uh, it's, it's like Beavis and Butthead it's like, it's like, like that person the difference between like thrash and slamming you know, you know. <laughs> so, like, well someone did write a PhD thesis about about the physics of mosh pits, so maybe <laughs> maybe this is just an early... Was it you? It, no, it wasn't me. <laughs> but anyway, we'll play out with the dead Kennedys. <laughs> Jello and Klaus. Thanks Bye. so much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. something I have only read about. It again is um, both the pit and slam dancing was phrases coined by the Los Angeles Times to try to attract thugs to the bands to make it more violent and thus rob it of its credibility and its fun, basically. But slam dancing came along with thrash music. The proper name for the dance is the thrash. That's what more and more people call it than slam dancing. And um, it basically means bending your head down and swinging your arms back and forth and uh, bumping into each other like the pogo. It's, it's more risky than the pogo. There are areas like Fresno, California, where slam dancers can like get in tightly knit groups where they're all bouncing off of each other and form a pinwheel of 10 or 20 people and nobody's hitting each other's face. They're yeah, all great. completely dodging each other. It's basically the newer people who've drifted into the scene in the past year or so are mainly thrashers rather than pogoers. That was Jello Biafra and Klaus Floride of Dead Kennedys conversing with John Tobler in 1981, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. 